Are you ready to overcome the complexities and burdens that come with your success? Join the team at Centura Wealth Advisory in the Live Life Liberated podcast. Now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to Live Life Liberated with the team from Centura Wealth Advisory. Today, back on the microphones, Derek and Kyle. Gentlemen, how are you guys? Doing fantastic, Eric. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Eric. Thanks Doing for having awesome. me. Yeah, I mean, this is your show. I'm just I'm just here along for the ride to learn with the audience. And today you guys are talking about charitable planning and all sorts of different things within that realm. So give the audience a little preview of what you're actually talking about. Yes, Eric, thank you for that introduction. America being as wealthy as it is, is also very charitably minded. Probably the individual citizens of this country give more than all other countries. And those who work with ultra high net worth families, those that are 10 million or above, um, need to understand how to optimize charitable giving for those they serve. Mm -hmm. I love it. Yeah. Families definitely give a lot of money. You know, just historically speaking, I think in 2020, they gave $471 billion to charity. And so there's a lot of planning opportunities that we're going to talk about today. We're going to specifically focus in on one and all the considerations around that strategy and what we think about as a firm in approaching a client situation to optimize it for the best results for charity, for the family, for wealth transfer, whatever, whatever the goals are, is what we're going to be talking. So often when we see charitable planning for the ultra high net worth families that we serve, we often do not see that planning optimized, optimized to the client's goals, whether it be wealth transfer or income tax planning, how can they benefit those they want to benefit in the most tax advantaged way for themselves. And so careful thought and consideration should be put around those, that charitable giving strategy to optimize this for the family. Well, bottom line is that if any family is thinking uh, about giving to charity or they're charitably inclined, they would want to optimize it for the betterment of the charity as well, right? I mean, I mean, the more they optimize it and the less taxes they have to pay overall, so on and so forth, at the end of the day, in my mind at least, there's more money to be given away to either the charity or pass to family eventually. But do, is that uh, what you find, that they really want to optimize it to give more to charity? Well, they do. They do. However, what happens is they get touched by some cause mm-hmm. or there is some event or there's something that happens in their life that they decide to make a grant, decide to participate in some kind of campaign, gotcha. and that they, they get started with that uh, because they're touched and they, a strategy hasn't been developed to determine how to do it most optimally for their family. Got it. Well, I'm excited to hear what you guys have to say. Eric, I would say there too is um, charitable planning is in part advanced or uh, considered because of the tax advantages of it as well. Mm -hmm. And so while ultimately they do want to get more to charity, you know, anytime you can benefit yourself and your family at the same time while benefiting a charity, and basically using the IRS dollars to do that, then it becomes a really attractive strategy. And that's, that's what we're talking about. Amen. Good stuff. So today we're going to be taking a very common, a big area of charitable planning called charitable remainder trusts that have been 
largely out of favor for the last 10 to 15 years uh, for a variety of reasons. One is that tax rates have gotten pretty darn cheap relative to history. Uh, so that that caused people to say, gosh, maybe maybe we should consider different strategies. The second thing that happened is interest rates fell off a cliff in 2008, and that made other charitable strategies more efficient and made a certain half of the charitable remainder trust, the, the Kratz, less efficient. And so interest rates have come back up here, some, you know, and back to maybe median levels. So those Kratz are starting to look better, Kyle. And with interest rates going up, making other strategies not as efficient, like charitable lead annuity trusts, CRTs are getting revisited. And I know you've been doing a lot of research and talking to a lot of our centers of influence across the country. And why don't you share what, what you've learned to date? Yeah, we spent a lot of time digging in through a lot of white papers, digging into the history of CRTs, how the IRS approaches them. You know, what can you do? How can you get flexible in the planning? What are your options getting into what are the problems? And we, we dug it all up. And the short version is it's a very complex area and there's a lot of considerations and there's a lot of different paths you can take and there's compliance and you need to really think about it and find the right advisors to coach you on it so that you get the right result. Oftentimes in my career, I've heard the CRT pitch which is always, hey, just contribute this asset and you get the stream of income. But it's a lot more than that. If you want to do it right and you want to get it right and you want to benefit, then you need to take the time and, and, and think through it. So let's take this apart in pieces. And we've broken this discussion up into five pieces. First, quickly go through the history and the market opportunity. Second, we would go through the CRT fit in the audience. Who's that right for? What is a CRT? You know, what's how do you design? What are the mechanics around design? And you're going to see it's like going through a plinko machine. There's a lot of choices along the way in designing this right. What are the risks and considerations? And then how do you choose the right investment strategy? Because many CRTs have failed. And how do you how do you get it right? Um, so those are those are the areas that we're going to cover today. And I'm going to start pinging Kyle for all kinds of information about these different set pieces of going through this strategy. So <clears throat> Kyle, where would you like to start? You want to start with? Uh... Yeah, well, let's just start historically speaking. Charity has been a big piece of American history for a long, long time. And the IRS recognizes that to give people the incentive to give, giving them a tax break was what was needed. And over a long period of time, there's been lots of, I mean, there's more uh, legislative and PLRs and tax tax rulings on this type of, uh, in this area than we could ever speak of in 10 podcasts. But there's a couple of major things that happened, you know, the Tax Reform Act of 1969, which was really America's first comprehensive national tax policy on charitable planning. Then we had, you know, they, anytime they put legislation forth and they and they create this type of structure there's always the opportunity for abuse and so the irs over time starts to 
chip away at those and create more rules. And, you know, they said, Hey, let's establish a 5% probability tax test for charitable remainder trusts with this revenue ruling 77374. And then they got, you know, practitioners got creative and they started doing this accelerated two-year crut and they said, well, Hey, we're not going to let you do that. So they limited how much money you could get out of a crut in 1997 to 50%. So it, it, there's a long history here and understanding their position and why they took the approach and enacted the laws they took helps in the overall sense of, okay, how, where do we want to take it from here? So so, yeah, since 1969, there's a lot of rules that you got to comply with because okay. practitioners have tried to abuse it in different ways than the service and Congress have come out and said, okay, here are the new rules around this. So there's a lot of rules around yep. this, but why don't we just t- first discuss the mechanics of how it works? What is a CREP? How does it work? Perfect. So a charitable remainder trust, that's what uh, we... we we may refer to it as a CRUT often in this presentation. That stands for Charitable Remainder Unit Trust, but there is also a CRAT, which is a Charitable Remainder Annuity Trust. We'll talk about that in a minute. So forgive us if we use CRUT synonymously in this conversation. But a Charitable Remainder Trust is basically you set up a trust, just like any other trust you would have. It's an irrevocable trust, and you're going to fund this trust with the asset that you want to leave to charity. And the benefits or one of the benefits is when you add this, when you donate this property or appreciated stock or whatever it is into this trust, you get to sell that asset without paying taxes. And then it's going to create an income stream for the grantor or the the donator or any income beneficiary that you want to name. So you set up a trust, donate assets, create an income stream. And at the end of the term, whatever's left over in that trust will go to charity, hence the name Charitable Remainder Trust. Most often, the three assets that are contributed is highly appreciated real estate that is unencumbered, highly appreciated stock, or privately held stock. Those are the three asset classes for the most part, now we're starting to see crypto and other things, but for the most part, those are traditionally the three assets that we, it's highly appreciated asset that you want to put in a trust and turn into an income stream to benefit you and your family and, and then eventually charity. So let's talk about the audience, right? And first and foremost, the CRT strategies, you really need donative intent. It is it is the by the nature of just the name of it, charitable remainder trust, you need to be charitably inclined. And so families that want to give more money to charity, that that is a, a meaningful goal in their life. This is a good strategy for, could be a good strategy for. Are you stating you're required to be have donative intent for all people that would set up a trust like this? It's, it's a little challenging if you just want to benefit yourself, there could be some situations where that would work. But generally speaking, yes, you should have some donative intent. I, I think we're saying maybe 50% of the cases, it's the primary motivation. But there are there are sections of people that don't require donative intent because there could be a net present value positive for their family. Is that accurate or do you disagree with that? No, I agree with that. It's a smaller subset if you want it to be just 
specifically for the benefit of your family. And Hey, I'm going to redirect some IRS tax dollars to, to charity that I would say that would be people that really are going to recognize a tax spread and the tax spread is going to be, maybe you're selling a business in California and you're going to pay 13.3% state tax, but you live in Florida and you really want that income to come to you in Florida where you don't have an income tax. There's a tax spread that's very beneficial that from a net present value can work out quite well. That, yeah. that, that's accurate. And there's a lots of different types of tax spreads. So yep. it, that's way beyond the scope of yep. today. But yeah, I think we've penciled out that we think that um, of all the folks that the families that we would see, probably half of the families, the primary motivation is a charitable cause, right? They have donative intent. We've penciled that about a third of the folks are really doing it for wealth transfer. There's ways to really, really leverage their wealth transfer needs. How do they get assets from their generation to the next generation or two? Then third, a much smaller delta is what Kyle just spoke about are folks that, gosh, there's a tax delta out there and there's a whole bunch of different ones and that could work. And then the smallest piece is those that are, we call them cuspers. They're, they're folks that said, gosh, I could sell this asset, whether it be business or real estate or stock, but I don't know if I'm going to have enough. I don't know if this $20 million is going to give me enough cash flow to live the rest of my life the way I want to after paying tax. Gosh, if I just sell it and pay tax, I'm going to, my 20 million is going to be 13 million. Or I could sell the 20 million and eliminate almost all of the tax and get cash flow from the whole thing. I wouldn't put it all, you very likely wouldn't put it all in the crut, maybe put two thirds or three quarters of it in the crut. But you would eliminate the tax on almost all of the gain and take it over time. It allows you to lower your withdrawal rate. Those are kind of the four areas people who have donative intent, majority, people who need wealth transfer people who have a tax delta, and then folks that are customers just need to eliminate the tax so they can get higher income for them and their family for their lives. Anybody else? Do we miss anybody? No, that's the four primary people. The characteristics for sure. So let's talk about how to plan for it and how to design it. Because we always say, hey, there's facts, assumptions, and goals. And there's no shortage of any of those details in this transaction. And so we always look at, you know, hey, what are your charitable goals? Do you want to maximize the benefit to the charity, which is kind of back to the profile one, or do you want to minimize this? And do you really want this to be a benefit for you and your family? So charitable goals comes into play, but then what is it that you're donating? What's the basis? What's the tax basis of what you're donating? What are the tax characteristics of the sale had you not sold that inside of a CRT. In other words, is it ordinary income? Is it depreciation recapture? You need to know those facts because from a tax perspective, one, you're going to eliminate, you're going to mitigate the tax on the burden of the sale initially. And then two, how does the money come out? Which leads to how much income do you need? Do you want income immediately for your life? Or do you have a desire to defer the income for five years or six years, or even better yet, would you like to control the income on an annual basis, uh, which is pretty specific, but you know, maybe you have some liquidity events in the next couple of years where you don't really want a lot of income because you don't want to drive yourself into those higher tax rates. 
So there's the income piece of it. What do you really need? There's your life expectancy. How long are you going to live? Right. We'll talk about that risk. There are the investment choices. What are you going to put inside of this thing? How are you going to keep the tax rates low? You put the wrong assets in there, you're going to increase your tax rate. And, you know, what are the tax spread opportunities? Can we take things that would ordinarily be ordinary income and make them long-term capital gains rate and save you quite a bit of money on that? So those are, those are the considerations where we look at and the factors that we model out to really come up with the best plan. And it takes, it takes homework. It takes uh, good questioning, pointed questions to the client, what's really important. And we can get down to, hey, here's the top three ways you would want to design this. And then you continue to whittle down and get to the optimal design. There are a lot of choices here, but let's give some additional fact profiles of just to to get people thinking about it. Let's take the highly paid exec that has a bunch of company stock and saying, gosh, I'm in a high tax bracket, but I'd like to start getting liquid on some of this stuff and get it into income producing assets before I retire. But I'm, I live in California. I'm planning on relocating to Washington or Idaho or Texas or somewhere somewhere else after retirement. And I'm in the highest tax bracket. Should I, should I put some of this inside of a trust and liquidate it, get it into things that I want it in and wait to get the income in three years from now until I retire, right? I mean, that's a profile. Other pro- that's, a, that's a great profile, by right? the way. I mean, there's, there's 8, 10, 12, 15 different profiles that doesn't fit for everybody. It's today, you're betting on tax rates today are higher today for the individual than they are in the future. And for the most part, when you look on aggregate regarding taxes, I don't think too many people think that's the case. Most people believe taxes are pretty low right now. And with the government overspending, whether it be the state of California or the federal government, tax rates are probably going to be higher in the future. That's a real risk to this strategy. Now it's about you as the taxpayer, though. What is your tax burden going to be today versus in the future marginal from a marginal rate standpoint? And how can you plan it to be beneficial toward for what you're doing? Because you can design it specifically for the purposes of getting lower taxes on that income. For sure. It just, you got to take the time and design it. For sure. So a lot of CRUDs over the last several decades have not done well. They've performed poorly. And we're going to put that into two camps. One, from our research, it looks like from a design standpoint, they weren't designed well. And two, they didn't have the appropriate investments. The investment strategy failed. And it's either one or two or both, but the evidence suggests many have not performed. So why don't we spend a moment and just talk high level from a design standpoint? It's like a Plinko machine, Kyle, going through this thing, right? You drop it in the top to say, okay, a crut might fit. Is it a crut or a crat? That's the first decision process, right? Based on age and all kinds of different things are going to put you down which side of the Plinko machine. So you go down the crut, then there's how many different kinds of cruts are there? There's five different kinds of cruts. There's one type of crut, but there's five different kinds of cruts. And the one that most people would know about, we just call it a standard crut, scrut, but most people just refer to it as a crut. That is one where you just get the income based off the, end, the 1231 value of the assets and it's a percentage. And then there are 
four other ones and they got pretty cool little acronym names, which is pretty standard in the estate planning world, right? NICRET, NIMCRET, FLIP NIMCRET, FLIP NICRET. And not it's beyond the scope of this conversation to get into those, but the way uh, what those four are about is income planning and how to defer that income and control that income specifically for your tax situation. This is really about facts, assumptions, and goals. And I, I'm not certain that a lot of planning has been done on other cruts. People that come to us, we see the crut, like, how was this planned out? It really wasn't. It is complicated. So understanding, do you go crut or crat? Then what kind, if you're going to go crut, which kind of crut? Now you get down to payout rates and duration, right? What kind of payout are you going to take? And what kind of duration? Why don't you talk a little bit about that, Kyle? Well, you got to take a minimum payout of five, but the most you can five take what? is 5%, excuse me. And the most you could take out is 50. I haven't seen one anybody ever do one. It's based on age, right? You're banded by age. Yep. Depending on how old you are determines whether you can take out five, six, seven, or all the way up to 50%. That's correct. You could decide to take the money annually. You could take it quarterly. You could take it semi-annually, but it, you do need to comply with whatever you put in that trust document. You must adhere to that, right? That's kind of the compliance side of it. And then it's the duration, right? Do you want it to be the longest you can do on a term is 20 years, but you could say, hey, I want a lifetime crut. And to Derek's point, that payout, the younger you are, the, the less they would let you take money out because going back to the beginning of the conversation, hey, you have to leave at least 10% of this thing to charity. And the IRS has done all the math to figure out, hey, somebody that's really young, if they take too high a payout, charity's going to get hosed and they don't really want that to happen. And so you could do this life payout. And then there's three other payouts you could do. You could do this life with consecutive term, the longer of life consecutive term, the, the shorter of, or this life with consecutive term. So there, we're going to not talk about those, but those could come into play. And again, back to facts, circumstances and facts, assumptions, and goals, depending on what you're doing and what your profile is, you may pick any, any one of those five, but it's, it's so specific to what you're trying to do. And you get such a better result by designing it that way. It's worth the time to, to think about it. Yeah. So for the most part, the duration of CRUDs are usually not a term. They're usually linked yep. to somebody's mortality or a group of individuals' mortality. So this is a longevity bet. The longer you live, and as long as there's good investment management, so the assets are growing in there, the longer you live, the more money you get out of the structure. And you have real mortality risk. If you put a bunch of money in there and the plane goes down tomorrow with you or your spouse or whomever the measuring lives are, these assets go to charity right away, whether that be your private foundation, your donor advised fund, or outright 501c3s. Yeah, I think that's a good conversation into, into the risks, Derek. And the life, you know, on a term, if it's 20 years and you die, it would pay out to your remainder beneficiaries. But on a life, which is the way most of them are set up, you, you hit the head of the nail there, Derek. If you get hit by a bus the next day, all that money you put in that trust goes to the charity. And so you have to mitigate that risk. You know, there's also investment risk, which Derek was talking about, specifically sequence of returns. You know, we could, we could spend 30 minutes just talking about that, but 
you know, you could get over a 20 year period, 6% rate of return, but the path you get to that 6% return matters because you're making distributions. And if you get a bad sequence of returns out of the gate, your dollar cost averaging out in the worst scenario, and you're not going to recover in that strategy. So you said a lot there. Let's unpack that. So dollar cost averaging is when you're putting money in on a frequency and buying shares or of stock or mutual fund or something. And you're not looking at the share price. You're just buying and then volatility helps you because you yep. buy more shares in down markets. And if, if you look from left to right on a page, if you believe all markets, if you go long enough, go slope up to the right, that's going to work out. Now, this, because you're, you are required to take a distribution at least annually, is dollar cost averaging in reverse. You are now selling shares, selling assets, or taking distributions of income, depending on how the structure is set up, yep. that you may be selling things at a loss to provide that income. So you risk management from an investment standpoint. Downside volatility is a killer here. And we know by there's a couple market providers in the industry that buy failed cruts and they're buying hundreds of thousands of them. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and it's because people mismanage the assets and one could argue that the stock market is what most people would invest their money in stocks and bonds and the stock market can be a very unfriendly, volatile place at the, exactly the wrong time, which could cause real risk and real stress to the long-term success of this strategy, right? So, uh, you know, imagine you got a million bucks in there and the market sells off 30% and then you have to take a 10% distribution. Well, that's now 30% bigger distribution on a smaller number and it just compounds that way. And so we spend a lot of time, hey, what's the right way to think about this so that we can get predictable returns and we, we grow the assets to do what the original design was and what people, what the expectation of the client is, right? No one ever runs an illustration and says, oh, you're going to lose much money and your income's going to go down. No one ever signs up for that. And so you got to be, you got to be protective of that and, and think about that. So what are the what are assets that would work really well inside of a CRUD? What kind of investments? Because we're seeking investments that have very peak to trough drawdowns. Are there's lots of ways to measure risk, and the couple ways that we think are really important for investments that are in a trust where they're going to produce annual income is peak to trough drawdown is a big big thing, and the second is downside volatility. Who cares about upside ball? Downside ball is the killer. Yep. So what are the, what's the investment universe that we think works well inside of these structures? We like, well, we like unencumbered real estate. We like mobile home parks. That one works really well. Storage would be good. Uh, multifamily, if you get the yield would be great in there. So you know, that is one where you're going to crank out good income. It'll match up. It doesn't have the volatility of the stock market. We have been doing a lot of structured notes. That would be a, a good investment to consider in there because you got great downside protection 
and it cranks out a good yield and it mitigates that big peak to trough drawdown, right? I mean, if the first 25% is protected, we did some podcasts on that. You guys can study that and it'll make sense. I'm drawing a blank on the, on the, on the other one there, Derek, help me out. So, but we also like equity exposure in there as well, but we want it tax managed because yeah. it, it's not just the investment risks. It's also, we get worst in first out tax treatment as well. So you just mentioned several things, all those real estate assets that are protected by depreciation that work extremely yep. well. But then how do we couple that with liquid investments like structured notes or like taxed managed equities? But it can't be a you know, it can't be 50, 60, 70% of the portfolio. I mean, we need to have a much smaller piece of the overall portfolio so that we're not selling equities to pay yep. the income stream. And to your point there on the tax management piece of it, right? You wouldn't want ordinary income, and, and we haven't talked about this, but one of the tax attributes of a CRT is the worst income comes up first. So you do need to manage the assets tax efficiently because if you go buy a bunch of ordinary income type assets, that money's going to come out first at the highest rates, and, and you don't really want that. So you want long term capital gain type assets. You want assets that are protected with depreciation. You want really tax efficient assets. So when you're talking about equities, you, you really want to stay on you know, the qualified dividend or long-term capital gain train to make it tax efficient for you so that you're not paying more than you have to. That's right. So those are the two issues, taxes and downside ball to producing the income annually. So we're not selling into, into uh, bad outcomes. So let's talk about really kind of the four phases of this trust. Phase one, and depending on the trust design, the assets go in, you're going to pay taxes on that asset coming out. Now, maybe, maybe not, but for the most part, you're probably going to pay, if you put 20 million in, whatever the character of that is, usually you're going to pay on that coming out. How, how do you mitigate that? That's phase one. Phase two how you invest in there is going to determine that tax character on those assets coming out. How are you going to do that and optimize that? What does it look like in your life? Where do you, how has your income changed? What tax bracket do you think you're in? Do you, are you in a different locale? Do you not pay state income? All those things come into play. The third is I have mortality risk now. Do I care? Am I no? This I'm. I, my family doesn't need this asset. I don't need wealth replacement, or do I need to pair this up with insurance in a way to say I want to make certain that my family gets the asset back? The charity's gonna. The government's not going to get any. They're only going to get the income tax based on the income that comes out. I'm going to cut them out. I'm going to give charity a big piece, but I don't want my family to be shortchanged. So that's. The third phase of this. The fourth phase is that you could name somebody, depending on how old you are, to get income after your passing and how we're going to mitigate it for them. Those are kind of the four phases of this charitable planning. And gosh darn, it is complicated. It is. It is. The good thing is we understand it all and we can help you. But uh, <laughs> so, in terms of one thing we didn't really talk about is the compliance piece of it yet, Derek. You know, we talked about it at the beginning. Hey, the IRS is really 
created a bunch of rules. They're onto the games. So you do need to follow the rules and, you know, a couple things come into play, right? Jeopardy investment. You're not allowed to just, you know, go to, to Las Vegas and bled it, bet it on black and hope that you double up the assets. You're right. They don't like you to do things like that. Administratively, you, it's not that difficult, but you do need to know what you're doing to administer it and do it well. We see people screwing that up. We do. You know, the structure, self-dealing. And if you screw it up, the jeopardy is that they could invalidate the entire charitable structure. So even though small things could have a magnified effect, you want to make certain that the administration is tight. For sure. Self-dealing falls in that, right? So self-dealing is um, uh, a good example of self-dealing would be like somebody sets up a Roth IRA and puts their business in it because they think the business is going to, that would be self-dealing where you put something that you have your own personal beneficial interest inside of this. They don't particularly care for that. Um, excess business holdings and valuation. You got to get the right valuation. So there's, there's some things, there's homework that you have to do to manage this thing. And you got to have the right team to help you. Or to Derek's point, it, it, it could invalidate the transaction. So. so I think just to bring this to a close, these structures went out of favor because tax rates got low and there were better charitable planning structures available. Yep. Interest rates now are back on the rise and it looks like tax rates are on the rise. Here in California, it looks like they're going to raise tax rates in 2024 kind of underhandedly by Newsom. So as rates get higher, these things look even more valuable. So is it right for everybody? No. Unfortunately, no. It's only, you know, it, yep. it, uh, it's one of those uh, JD just depends and somebody really has to run the math. But in a final thought, Kyle, what, what do you think you should share with the listening audience around CRUDs or, or CRTs? I think if you have a situation where you're going to, you're contemplating exiting something that's highly appreciated, or a business that has a lot of gain or a piece of property. And, and, you know, if you probably have a place in your heart for charity, it helps. It's probably time to, to take a look at what your options are. What are the strategies? This is one of lots of strategies that could apply and, you know, have a conversation with the right people so that you can vet out what are the options for you. And if this one so happens to land in the center of the bullseye for you, then it's probably a win for uh, the charity and you and your family. And it's great to eliminate the IRS, but you know, those are the, it comes back to that. Hey, what are you going to get out of? And then having the right conversation. That's right. So I will just echo what he just said. It's making sure it's the right fit and we don't see it executed alone. It's typically in conjunction with it, you know, one or two other strategies that in total, the three of them accomplish what the clients are attempting to accomplish. So we know this was a meaty subject. Thank you for hanging in with us on this. Uh, if you'd like some help around this, we'd love to talk to you and share with you our knowledge around the subject. We're pretty passionate about charitable planning. We know it really benefits our clients' lives, both in saving the money, but also directing these, these monies to the causes that they deem important. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, I'm Derek with my partner, Kyle Malmstrom. Thank you so much for listening. And until the next time, Eric, take it away. Gentlemen, I, I'm just going to say something to the audience here. If, if you have been listening to this podcast for quite some time, you will know that 
there are a ton of folks at Centura Wealth Advisory. You know, when we introduce the the podcast, I always say the team from Centura because they have a lot of people working in the background. You've heard a lot of these voices on the podcast as well. If you're new to the podcast, you need to understand that these gentlemen aren't out to sell you anything. I've learned a ton from them by being a small part of this podcast and being able to be a fly on the wall, but they have taught me a tremendous amount. And if you look at the stack of podcasts that these guys have produced, it's enormous. And there's so many different items in there that you can learn, but even with as much content as they have, they've barely scratched the surface on a lot of these topics because it is a one-on-one conversation. And it, just like Derek said, it depends if it's right for you. Please reach out to them. Guys, what's the best way to contact your team? Really the easiest way is just get on the internet, look up centerowealth.com. You can find our phone number, you can find our email addresses, uh, or you could reach out to me or Derek, D Myron, D. M-Y-R-O-N at Centura Wealth or K-Malmstrom at CenturaWealth.com. Perfect. Kyle, Derek, thank you so much for your time. Always a pleasure, gentlemen. Thanks, Eric. Thank you, Eric. You bet. And our last thank you always goes to you listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast from the team from Centura Wealth Advisory. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when the team comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. And we humbly ask that you share this podcast, rate it, and leave a review, as this actually does help others find the show. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at Centura Wealth Advisory, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Centura Wealth Advisory. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Centura Wealth Advisory, Centura, is an SEC-registered investment advisor with its principal place of business in San Diego, California. Centura and its representatives are in compliance with the current registration and notice filing requirements imposed on SEC-registered investment advisors, in which Centura maintains clients. Centura may only transact business in those states in which it is notice filed or qualifies for an exemption or exclusion from notice filing requirements. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Tax relief varies based on client circumstances and all clients do not achieve the same results. 